Do you like violent cop movies? Do you like rap? Do you like movie trailers? What if you combined all three? Like this. Twisted look into the minds and careers of rogue undercovers and the left arm of the law. In a world of death and corruption, a terrorist named Wolfgar brings the city to its knees. And the only hope for New York are two PD gone bad. Gita Silva and Matt Fox are Nighthawks. Let's feed him with death, put heat to their chest. Vice squad to make your life hard, scheming for breath. 1080s make that shit shady, make you stick babies, make you swallow with madams, nigga, and hit ladies. You popping that shit, dog, but that shit don't concern me because I smoke big weed with the district attorney. Nighthawks is a 1981 cop thriller starring Sylvester Stallone and Billy D. Williams. The story centers around the lives of two NYPD police detectives Detective Sergeant Deke De Silva and Detective Sergeant Matthew Fox. De Silva and Fox are recruited to a special task force to capture an international terrorist named Wolfgar, played by Rutger Hauer. Hamer Reinhardt, sometimes called Wolfgar. Born Frankfurt, Germany, 1946. Educated Paris and Patrice Lumumba University, Moscow. Currently self-employed. Occupation? International terrorist. You are to be indoctrinated in counter-terrorist techniques. Deke De Silva, age 35. Born and raised New York City. Honorable discharge, U.S. Army, 1972. 52 registered kills. Occupation, cop. One man can bring the world to its knees. And only one man can stop him. Pictures presents Sylvester Stallone in Nighthawks. The following is cribbed from Spotify's artist bio section. The tortured and visceral lyrics of underground rapper Cage, Chris Palco, come from a life of pain, paranoia, hard drugs, and hard living. His father was MP in the U.S. Army, stationed in Würzburg, Germany, when Cage was born. The family lived there until Cage's father, named Bill Murray, was busted for selling and using heroin and sent back to America. Landing in Middletown, New York, Cage's father continued using heroin and didn't bother concealing it from his son, going as far as to have the young Cage tighten the tourniquet around his arm. A standoff with the state police after threatening his family with a shotgun landed Murray in jail. It was the last time eight-year-old Cage would see his father. While in high school, Cage went home to a physically abusive stepfather. Drugs became a serious problem for the teen, leading to expulsion from school, getting kicked out of the house, and various arrests for various crimes. Facing serious jail time, Cage's mother convinced the judge to send her son to a mental health institution instead of jail. Sentenced to 18 months in the Stony Lodge Psychiatric Hospital, 
he became a test patient for the new drug Prozac. His depression deepened and suicide attempts led to solitary confinement. It was there Cage had nothing to do but write his thoughts on paper. Released from the lodge and confident with his writing skills, Cage began practicing his rap and eventually cut a demo. Meeting Pete Nice of third base led to Cage's first appearance on a record, a guest vocal on Rich Bring Em Back from Nice's 1993 album Dust to Dust. Appearances on DJ Stretch Armstrong and Bobito Garcia's legendary NYC radio show got his name out and led to friendships with the KMD crew, the late Sub Rock, Pharaoh Monch, and producer LP. Nice and Garcia were working on a sub-label for Columbia and encouraged Cage to make the major label jump. Too strung out on drugs to record a worthwhile demo, Cage put his career on hold and descended deeper into drug abuse. Garcia formed his own Fondalum label in 1997 and gave Cage another try. This time he was ready and focused and recorded three successful underground 12 inches for the label, including the revered Agent Orange. Against a machine like rage, bitches say I hate you, Cage. After circle jerks, I wash my hands off in two dirt. Sick with a smirk, plus happy to stir. Fuck the first two bitches like dogs, and I jacked off on the third. I'm obvious oblivion, but that's my science. Fuck your head up like cornrows, put in by blind giants. Haven't been with it since the last corpse kid. It wore a bloodstained smile and told the cop he did it. Struck down in his prime, the late underground rapper Kamu Teo was a key artist on the definitive Jux label until 2008 when he died of lung cancer at the age of 30. Born Taro Smith in Columbus, Ohio, Camus formed the Columbus-based rap group Megahertz, which consisted of the rappers Copyright, Tage Future, Jakai the Motormouth, and producer RJD2. The group released their first single, world premiere, on Fondalum in 1998, after Bobito heard it on a tape that they had dropped off with him in NYC. Handle the jewels with care when you're riding. My aggressiveness is on another plane. Like the gods when all stay open, golf and golf and that's a form of writer's block. By this jock, the rhyme stages. My phrases are like mazes. Lock the mind, gap shaw, snap your reality like the bat shaw. By the early 2000s, Cage and Camus were friends and label mates on Eastern Conference Records. The record label was founded and owned by DJ Mighty Mai. Mighty Mai was one half of the rap duo The High and Mighty with rapper Mr. Eon. Mighty Mai was the DJ producer. Eastern Conference Records had a substantial label deal with Rockus Records that lasted a couple years. After EC and Rockus's partnership ended, Mighty Mai got a distribution deal for Eastern Conference with Landspeed Records. Having signed artists like Cage and Kemu Tao, as well as Megahertz member Copyright, Eastern Conference had a notable run of releases in the underground rap scene before ultimately closing up shop due to issues with its artist. Cage claimed the label owed him money, and he, along with Kemu, went over to rapper-producer LP's Def Jux label. But today's episode is not about that. Today's episode is about a collaboration between Cage and Kemu Tao while they were on Eastern Conference Records. That collaboration was a concept album called Nighthawks, which, if you haven't guessed, was inspired by the film Nighthawks, starring Sylvester Stallone and Billy Dee Williams. This collaborative concept album was recorded in only three days. It's a cohesive 13-track album with a narrative that runs through the entire project. I wanted to do an episode about Nighthawks because I want to talk about how art inspires other art, 
even across different mediums. So without further ado, let's start the episode. Whatever it is, it appears to be a genetic aberration. No shit. This weird aberration society. Welcome back to MAS. This is side A. Much like a cassette tape or a record um side a is one half of the episode which is nighthawks the film from 1981 and side b is nighthawks the rap album inspired by the film so to kick it off um instead of doing what i usually do which is read the letterbox synopsis i actually have nighthawks on vhs and I actually watched it on VHS. So let me just do uh, a new thing by reading an old thing, which is I'll read the back of the VHS tape uh, for the synopsis of the film. So the back of the tape reads as such. Nighthawks is a tough contemporary story of suspense and intrigue that begins in Paris and London and reaches its chilling conclusion on the streets of New York. When Wolfgar, Rooker Howard, Europe's most feared terrorist suddenly explosively announces his presence in New York City. Two tough undercover cops, Deke De Silva, Sylvester Stallone, and Willis Fox, Billy Dee Williams, are given the most impossible task of finding and stopping him before he strikes again. In the brutal cat and mouse game that follows, the terrorist shoots Willis, holds UN diplomats and their families hostage on a tramway high above the city and manages to stay one step ahead of De Silva until their last deadly confrontation. Okay, what do I have to say about this? For listeners of this podcast, uh, you all know that I always critique the letterbox synopsis because I always say, yo, they're kind of um, hit and miss. Well, let me just say this. Uh, this is somewhat descriptive, but there's a big glaring mistake on this box, which is, Willis Fox is not the name of Billy D. Williams' character. Um, in the movie, it clearly says that his name is Matthew Fox. He's referred to as Matt and Matthew throughout the entire movie. I mean, it's listed on IMDb and everywhere you look as Matthew Fox. It even says Math Fox, I believe, um, in certain promotional trailer-style uh, clips for this movie. So yeah, uh, it's funny how mistakes can like physical media can have a, a mistake living in in the in the world long after the movie's gone. Uh, but yeah, um, this movie I'm gonna be a hundred percent honest. I wouldn't have done an episode about Nighthawks uh, because as f- fun as Nighthawks is in its own kind of endearing way, it is very boilerplate uh, and kind of cookie cutter in terms of the kind of film or the kind of mold that this movie is trying to uh, be, which is, this is, let's be honest, this is 1981. 
this movie is a direct response to the success in reception of the French Connection. Um, you can tell just in the way the movie's approach, the, the approach of this movie, the grittiness, which I love, I love the grittiness of this movie, um, but you can tell it's very much, you know, um, influenced by the, by how well received the French Connection was, uh, which, you know, obviously won an Oscar. Um, this is no French Connection by any means, but that being said, there are elements to it that are very entertaining. Um, the biggest being, uh, Rugger Howard, I mean, he pretty much steals the entire movie. In fact, I would go as far to say he feels like the star of the movie more so than anyone, more than Stallone, you know, more than Billy Dee Williams, even though Billy Dee Williams is clearly not, he's clearly a co-star, if anything. Um, he's, you know, he's, he's third on the call sheet. You know what I mean? He's not really, but he's still Billy Dee Williams, and he does, you know, his 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 uh, charisma is is clear in every moment that he's on the screen. I mean, again, so is Stallone's to a certain extent, and obviously Ruger Howard's. So again, the cast is the strength of this movie, but I will say this. I know that this movie uh, had some production troubles because I think their original director, I looked into it, was Gary Nelson, and he got fired a week into shooting, and uh, I think that's when Bruce Malmuth came in to take over, uh, who is the credited director for Nighthawks. Uh, I know Sylvester Stallone apparently tried to step in as director, but the Directors Guild was like, nah, you can't do that. So uh, Stallone wasn't able to come in. I mean, obviously Stallone, this is Stallone after Rocky. You know what I mean? This is before Rambo. So this is kind of like him trying to figure out like what kind of career trajectory he was going to have after, you know, an amazing sort of debut film that, again, fetched him an Oscar as well. Um, so, yeah, a Nighthawks is one of those, you know, interesting movies in Stallone's filmography where you're like, catching him in a, an interesting moment in his career, you know, um, right after the huge splash that was Rocky and before sort of the next major moments in his career, which would be like Rambo and then the subsequent Rambo sequels and, you know, things like Cobra and Tango and Cash, you know, the movies that are in this vein, but also kind of better in so many different ways. But again, the primary reason for me talking about Nighthawks is because Nighthawks inspired a whole other different piece of art, which is a rap album, um, but I'll get more into that on side B of, of this episode, but back to side A, which is the Nighthawks film, so I'll just sort of go through the movie and talk about what Nighthawks is about and sort of hit the points, and I will try to be brief about it, because again, like, there are cool moments in this movie, let me just say that, it's not all shit, because it's not shit, it's actually just kind of okay, uh, with some memorable moments here and there. Um, another star in this movie besides Rugger Hauer is New York City. And seeing this sort of New York City uh, depicted in, in this movie, it's really the, probably big, it's the biggest star. It's even, it's a bigger star than uh, Rugger Hauer is. Um, New York is just at that time. Yeah. But yeah, let's just start. So the, the movie opens on like a woman in a phone booth. It's night. Again, it's New York City in the 80s, so it's basically, you know, Gotham City from Batman. Um, we see the woman, like, exit the phone booth and walk down the sidewalk, but then we also see a man waiting at the other end of the sidewalk in a kind of cool-ass, like, split diopter shot that's, like, very Brian De Palma. Um, and then the man, like, steps out in front of her, and he, like, brandishes a switchblade. You know, he demands the woman give up the purse she's 
carrying this large purse slung over her shoulder. Um, and then a second man comes from the side to which the woman, instead of, you know, screaming in fear, she kind of like KOs him with like this uh, purse swing uppercut combination. Though it's not even a combination. She just swings her purse upward and like knocks him down. Uh, and when that happens, like we see a third crook, a third thief, like r racing up from behind, but he's tackled uh, by Billy D. Williams, who's been sort of hiding in a doorway, a shadowed doorway, just kind of waiting. He tackles him and beats him down. Then it's just the guy with the switchblade and the woman. And at this point, you know, the woman does a Scooby-Doo style face reveal. She like rips her face off and it's, it's actually Sylvester Stallone wearing a rubber mask. So at this point, obviously, uh, a chase ensues, right? Um, and, and, and it's kind of cool because, like, you get to see sort of them running through this dark, wet, you know, I'm pretty sure they probably sprayed down the streets. You know, that is, that is a, a film technique that was popularized during that time and continues to this day. But this kind of, like, wet, dark, damp New York City. But Stallone chases the robber up to, like, I think it's the 174th Street uh, subway overpass. And like he corners him and like he, you know, he basically uses like the belt from the woman's coat robe he's wearing to disarm the like the guy with the knife. And then he like knocks him out. And as he does, the subway train passes by them, you know, basically obscuring the frame or obscuring them from the frame. So by the time the train is out of the shot, we just see Sylvester Stallone dragging the unconscious man across the ground while he's reading him his Miranda rights. And that's like how the movie opens. And it also opens with, I think it opens saying December 31st, New York City. Because immediately after this scene ends, it cuts to December 31st, London. And it's in the daytime. And we see we see a man coming up uh, out of the subway, right? Uh, and immediately, we don't know who this man is, but we know who this man is. Because this is, it's supposed to be Rucker Howard, right? Because he walks up out of the subway, but he looks different. Like, Ruger Howard doesn't have brown eyes, right, specifically. One, he also has a, a beard, facial hair that we're not used to seeing Ruger Howard with, and he also has a different nose. Um, so you're immediately like, wait a minute, I thought Ruger Howard supposed to be this guy. Um, and he is, but this is how the character looks, we discover, before he ends up getting facial uh, or plastic surgery, face, facial reconstruction surgery to... Uh, when his identity is discovered. But he's walking out of the subway. He walks into some department store. And as, and as he's walking through this department store, um, he comes up to a perfume counter. Um, and there's a woman working behind the counter. And he's sort of being creepily sort of uh, flirty with her. And she's sort of looking at him like, you know, who is this guy? She's clearly not, like, charmed by his, uh, his come-ons, right? But he's asking her to what perfume she she would suggest and then she suggests some bottle of something and he doesn't really even uh pay attention to what she's suggesting but he just tells her to wrap it up um and that he'll 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 he's gonna buy it when he comes back but as he's doing this we see that the book bag that he had been carrying um on his shoulder as he walked into the department store he is by his feet and he's like pushing it with his foot under the counter and then as he walks out of the store Back outside, he approaches a phone booth, and as he gets to the phone booth, the department store explodes, and of course, everyone outside um, screams and reacts like, oh my God, you know what I mean? I mean, again, it's a huge, massive explosion, 
And he, he calmly um, gets on the phone in the phone booth, and I think he calls the United Press and, you know, basically says, you know, this is Wolfgar, um, and, you know, I just bombed this department store in London, taking credit for it. And basically, you know, he gives his little spiel, his terrorist spiel of his motivations behind doing this. United Press. I have an announcement to make for your international wire. The Wolfgar Command has just struck a blow against British colonialism. Be warned that I have a long arm, and I'm prepared to fight my enemies wherever they may be. Don't forget, there's no security. It's a hell of an int introduction. You know, he made he made he made a. a <laughs> He made uh, himself or this character uh, known with a with a with a boom. Like, uh, I mean, God, that was a horrible. That was a horrible pun. My my apologies. <laughs> uh, but after this happens, we go back to uh, NYC, and we see uh, De Silva and Fox, who are dressed in some really like cool ass coats, that are clearly like concealing some weapons under them, and they're walking through this back alley, and they come up to a fire escape, which they scale up onto a roof. And then they enter a building um, from the rooftop entrance. And once they get into the hallway, they open their coats and pull out their pump shotguns and their badges that they're wearing on their necklaces. And they come up to a door, which they kick in. And they, bu they bust into sort of a drug operation where there's a bunch of men. Um, and one, immediately one of the drug dealers starts screaming at them, calling them pigs and saying, hey, you know, we already paid the cops off. What are you doing here? And this really sort of triggers... Uh, no pun intended. Uh, this this triggers uh, uh, Billy D. Williams, uh, aka Fox, and he gets pissed and slams a guy on the table and shoves his shotgun in his face. Uh, to which the whole room at this point gets tense. Everyone's looking like, "Oh shit!" Billy D. Williams is asking him to repeat himself, and that's when Stallone has to step in and sort of cool his partner, or calm his partner down, and tell him, you know, like, "Let him go, let him go. It's not worth it." And finally, um, after a tense beat or two. Fox relents and lets the guy up and they take all of the men away. Um, again, like you think that this scene is going to go somewhere. It, it, you know, you really do really get the sense like, oh, what's going to happen? But it, it ultimately doesn't, which again, I think a lot of moments, this movie has a lot of moments like that. But I do think that it's probably due to the fact that like, you know, this film had some production troubles and, and certain probably scenes were probably rewritten on the fly certain moments when you switch out directors like this you know um when a movie starts there's all sorts of things that can occur and happen um but yeah after this scene uh we see De Silva and Fox come to some kind of department store some sort of high-end designer st style department store uh Fox says he's gonna wait for uh, De Silva and this is where we meet uh De Silva's ex-wife because this is where she actually works at um I believe his ex-wife is Irene De Silva. I mean, I think she still has his name. I don't know how long they've been divorced, but the character is uh, played by Lindsay Wagner. Um, but he meets her, and it's clear that like his visit to his wife is like unexpected, and it's also clear that he wants to patch things up. But it's the ex, his ex Irene, is kind of uncertain if she does. But they go outside to talk on the fire escape. And he asks her if they can go to dinner, and she tells him she's not sure if that's going to work, but she'll be in touch with him. And again, it just sort of sets the scene um, for what ultimately comes back later in the story. 
but the sense that like the Silva is a single, you know, divorced cop who's devoted to his job uh, probably too much. Um, he's got a lot of PTSD. He's a war uh, veteran, um, but he's also a guy with a certain code. He doesn't want to kill, even though it's in war. He he got commendation for fifty-two. That's a lot of fucking kills. He had fifty-two confirmed kills over in Vietnam. Um, but yeah, so then we go back to London, um, and we see Wolfgard is at some get together at, at, at some house um, people are drinking, you know, it's like a house party, if you want to call it that. And he meets this guy. Um, I believe the guy's name is Kenna. I believe that's what Wolfgard was calling him, but basically, uh, he meets him, um, after this bombing has taken place earlier in the day. And, you know, he asked the guy if Mercer has sent him his money to which Kenna tells him that the department store bombing was overdone and that, like Mercer said, several children were killed and it hurt the movement. And Wolfgar is annoyed at this uh, information and he basically asks, or he doesn't even ask, he tells, he tells Kenna, like, you know, operations like his cost a lot of money to run, you know, like, so, like, whatever, you know, Mercer feels about how he did or this bombing, you know, he does need, he does need this money in order to continue, because again, he's, he feels like he's contributing to the movement in a valuable way, um, but again, he's a psychopath, so, uh, and then he asked the, the Kenna guy if, uh, where he was on Friday, and uh, Kenna tells him that he was picked up at the airport by police, which immediately uh, arises suspicion um, from Wolfgar, which, I mean, I guess, fair enough, I mean, you probably would be, and Wolfgar thinks that the guy told, you know, the police something, but immediately, Kenna's like, I would, I would never tell the police anything, but unfortunately, uh, right at that moment, um, a car pulls up outside, and they're by the window, and they look out, and it's three cops pop out. Now, they're not in, they're not in any sort of uniform, but it's clear they're cops, right? So, uh, we see the three cops, like, bounding up the staircase inside the building, and, uh, Wolfgar and, and Kenna, uh, Kenna walk out, and, um, as they're coming up, and immediately, when they when they when they see the cops and the cops see them coming up the steps, Wolfgar raises a, a guitar up and fires an Uzi through the guitar, like gunning them down, like in cold blood, like just executes them. Um, and then once they're dead, laying on the steps, he turns to Kenna, looks him looks him in the face, and then shoots him, executes him, and then leaves. Uh, and again, like if we if you haven't gotten any sense of who Wolfgar is, like at this point he's done a bombing. He's murdered people with a fucking Uzi, like indiscriminately, clear-cut psychopath. You know, um, yeah, Wolfgar is on some shit. Like, uh, at, the, at that point, in, in, or at this point in the movie, uh, I think Wolfgar goes to, uh, he has to go on the run now. Like, he has to get the fuck out of London, obviously, because he, he's, only, he's only turning up the heat everywhere he goes, right? Um, so he's, the next time we see him, he's actually in a, uh, a church. He's in a confession booth hiding. Um, and when he's hiding, uh, he's actually in the, where the, where the priest would sit to take confession. Um, and then that's when we meet, uh, his, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of this woman. Um, I believe her name is like Shaka. I think that's her name or something like that. Shaka, but she's this terrorist woman um that we get a little bit more info a little bit further into the story about but she walks into this church goes into the booth and you know obviously 
she's talking. She's, you know, she makes like she's going to do a confession, but she's really just there to talk to Wolfgar. And she says, why are you here? Why did you pick this place to meet that's so close to, like, where the cops are? And, and, and you know, Wolfgar gives her his spiel about, you know, he's, he needs to do the things that the way he needs to do them and, you know, or whatever. But he has to go on the run. So at this point, um, I think we flash back to New York City and we see uh, De Silva. He's walking through like Central Park by himself with a briefcase. Again, it's another one of these. Uh, this is what he does. This is this is what him and, and Fox do. They sort of do these. They set up, uh, you know, thieves and criminals like so. It's one of those things where he looks, you know, he's posing as some business person who's wants to intentionally be mugged by some men. Um, and as this mugging is about to go down, as he walks under this like underpass tunnel, a cop, uh, uh, a police car pulls up and pretty much interrupts and blows the whole thing. Um, and which pisses off not only De Silva, but Fox, who's obviously waiting in the wings again. And because this makes the criminals like scatter like roaches. Right. Um, and then they start yelling at the cops for 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 busting in on what like what the fuck's going on. And a little a funny like fight in in. in ensues between like a uh, fox and, and one of the plain coast police officers because i think he like shoves he like shoves a uh, fox and then billy d williams is like pissed and he's like and basically De silva has to like hold him back but they're both belligerent to the cops like what are you doing and he's he's like no you guys need to be downtown the captain um the captain needs you guys for some kind of shit right um um which cuts to a scene of joe spinell um for those who don't know who joe spinell is he's a very memorable actor he was in uh I believe Joe Spinell's known mostly for Maniac, um, which if you haven't seen Maniac, it's definitely MAS material. Um, Joe Spinell's pretty good at playing sort of a kind of like a guy of a, an Italian kind of character that's very 80s era New York City. He has that look to him, right? Um, gritty, you know, again, if I use that word a lot, I feel like you know, you should probably, uh, take a shot too, because no, don't, because you'll die of alcohol poisoning. Cause I'll probably say it a million times while I talk about this movie. Um, but, um, yeah, so Spinell is the Lieutenant. I think his name is like Mun Lieutenant Munafo. Um, they're back at, uh, the police headquarters and, you know, um, De Silva and Fox are like, what, why did you call us? What do you want? He, what, what are you doing? Like, you know, they're pissed. They're like, that's, you know, he says that they've been recruited for some special task force to catch this terrorist. I mean, Wolfgar. Um, and like, you guys are specifically selected and pulled off of the, your, your, your detail, your unit to do this. And this kind of pisses off De Silva and Fox. And a whole argument breaks out in front of everyone at the police station where pretty much uh, Spinell or the lieutenant um, pretty much, you know, scolds them and tells them, like, you, you'll you do what you're supposed to do. Well, tell me where this came from. From the commissioner, and he got it from Washington. They sent a specialist in from Europe, Interpol, to help organize the whole thing in conjunction with federal funding. And this department will extend every courtesy. Do you understand? No, I don't understand. Get your hands off me! Understand that, sucker! You're a cop, and you'll go where you're assigned. Now, you and Tom will be here tomorrow at 8 o'clock sharp. End the story. And then we go back to London and we see, I think around this time is when we see uh, Wolfgar at the plastic surgeon and he's requesting that he changes his face. Um, and obviously he does change his face. And then we get, you know, when, when we see him again in, in NYC, he is now the blue eyed 
uh, Rooker Hauer that we that we all know, right? Um, uh, and it's a brief scene. It's not really. It's just. It's just set up. Um, and then uh, I think it's at this point we're we're introduced. Uh, we've already met this character uh, in London after I believe the police were killed. A bunch of cops show up uh, at the house where Wolfgard gunned them down. Um, and uh, I think I think his name. I could be wrong. I could be confusing this, and if I am, I'm apologizing, but I believe his name was Inspector Orchard, I believe. I, I think, if I think I could be wrong about that. Uh, but I believe his name was Inspector Orchard. Uh, we, we meet him first there, but then he's the one in New York City who's putting together this task force to, 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 to catch in or murder, um, flat out murder fucking uh, Wolfgar, right? Um, so there's this whole series of scenes where we see uh, De Silva and Fox, along with a bunch of other uh, police officers who he's handpicked to be part of this uh, anti-terrorist wolf guard task force. Uh, and he's like trying to teach them. There's like a class. He like has them in class. He's trying to teach them anti-terrorist techniques and tactics, right? Um, and at this point... Um, He's going over, we're getting a lot of exposition. We're getting a lot of information like about Wolfgar. And that's where I said when the, the woman Shaka, like she's brought up, we see her, a picture of her. And basically, you know, he, she described as a, a rich, witch woman who kills for kicks or whatever the fuck, you know. Um, and we see the, the, the picture of Wolfgar, how he looked before plastic surgery. And then we have like composite sketches of what he, what they think he might look like post-surgery now that he's in NYC. Um, but yeah, there's a whole back and forth between De Silva and Orchard because De Silva's like, I'm not a terrorist. This is not what I do. We don't fight terrorism. We're, we're cops, you know, and, um, and also like he's hell bent on not killing people, you know, like that's his thing. It's like, he's not killing people. Like he doesn't want to use, but, but everything that, uh, everything that Orchard's telling him is basically like, yo, we need to assassinate this guy. We need to like meet. We need to meet fire and brutality with fire and brutality. He didn't use those words. In fact, I don't know why I said it in that way, but that's what I did. <laughs> so, uh, you know, um, this is, again, it ultimately leads to sort of like um, this. There's a big chase scene. That's probably my favorite moment in the movie. Um, but we do see... Rooker Hauer and how he operates and it's explained in these classes how he operates by Orchard to 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 De Silva and Fox which is he likes to come into a town um find a woman shack up with her and then sort of use her as sort of his means of like uh I don't know shelter and just sort of how why he does he does this is how he does his thing this is his his modus operandi you know like this is what he does everywhere this is his mo um, and he, in fact, he does, he's in a club, he walks up to some pretty chick, I think she's like a, an airline stewardess or whatever, uh, you know, they flirt, he uses his charm, he gets in with her, next thing you know, he's staying with her, um, and then at night, he blows up some uh, building with no one in it, um, and again, the next time we see them um, in the sort of task force meeting slash class, uh, they're talking about the explosion, and Orchard explains why Wolfgard 
did exploded a building when they at night when there was nobody there, and he was just basically like, "This is Wolfgard announcing to the to everyone that he's here now." And in his next thing, which is he's targeting the UN because the UN has an, a, some sort of meeting with a bunch of UN members from different repre different representatives from different countries uh, in the NYC, um, and that's his real target. We know that's his real target. He wants to get back in the good graces with the terrorist organization and whoever this unseen Mercer figure is, right? Um, again, this is really funny because it's really goofy the way they view terrorism. And there's a lot of kind of like anti, I mean, uh, left shit in here. It's just always baked in, like it's, whether consciously or unconsciously. Like it's even funny because they say, I think uh, the Orchard even says like he's, he's, Educated in the Patrice Ramon, Le, Patrice Lumumba uh, University in Moscow. Again, so like equating Patrice Lumumba, who was a hero, by the way, RIP, who was murdered by our government, um, portraying him as somehow some sort of like radical communist. Uh, I mean, which in, uh, and he was, but that doesn't mean he's bad. <laughs> that probably means he's good. And then, uh, and then they throw in Moscow. Like, why is there Patrice Lumumba University in Moscow? I don't even know if that's a fact. It sounds so absurd, but it could be real. It could be true. But again, tying in the Soviet Union, tying in Patrice Lumumba, tying it into like sort of, uh, you know, uh, Wolfgar and his terrorist activities, because Wolfgar views himself as a hero. And even at one point even says, like, I'm doing this for, I'm fighting for the people who have no voice. Again, this is this idea of this anti sort of rhetoric that's just laced throughout all sorts of American movies um, that we kind of been, we got brainwashed by. Like I said, this movie came out before I was even born. Um, and like, yeah, like I was just, so that's just go speaks to sort of like a lot of the sort of like embedded propaganda and sort of movies, even, even like, you know, problem and just straight up entertainment, popcorn movies like Nighthawks that you know, have, have, you know, have, I think this movie definitely had ambitions to be more than that, but ultimately isn't, um, but yeah, uh, where was I in, in the sort of plot? So yeah, so Wolfgard shacked up with this airline stewardess, he blows up this building, um, Orchard explains his methodology, um, I think at this point, like, um, De Silva and him have a disagreement, and De Silva says he's out, um, because he's not going to kill, you know, or whatever. Um, but ultimately, um, he does, he comes back to him and says he's back in, but he, he says something to the effect of like, uh, but I won't kill anybody. And then I think Orchard says, I know you'll shoot or you'll do the right thing in the moment. Like, you know, I, I know who you are. You have 52, you know, confirmed kills when you were over in the army. So you, you definitely somebody who knows how to take the right shot and is not afraid to pull the trigger. Uh, which, you know, fair enough, that's an accurate, pretty fair assessment <laughs> of some of someone, you know, potential, potential uh, uh, field work or whatever. Um, but yeah, so I think De Silva and, uh, oh yeah, yeah, so, so Wolfgar is shacked up with this airline stewardess woman, and we see her back at the apartment, and like, she opens the closet, and she sees this giant case, right, um, and she pulls this case out and opens it up, and inside the case is just an a plethora. It's a fucking stockpile. It's a weapon stockpile. He has fucking shotguns, Uzis, grenades, all kind of shit. And and of course, the moment she sees this, she's shocked. And that's when Wolfgard walks in and catches her. And she immediately is fearful, like, I promise I won't tell. And he's like, Don't worry, baby. And of course he kills her. Um, it actually doesn't show him kill her kill her for once. Um, but the cops show up at the house 
you know, I, you know at, at a certain point it shows like that, that the cops are there. It's a murder. And uh, we see uh, Spinell, Joe Spinell is there, uh, the lieutenant, and he gets on the phone um, with De Silva and he says, yo, tells him about this murder. It's up a stewardess. He, he says, I know that uh, Wolfgard is known to shack up with a woman while he's in here. And, and De Silva's like, well, what makes you tie this murder to, to Wolfgard? He's like, well, for one, there's a fucking map that we found here that has the fucking building that was bombed circled. So... This woman is, you know, she's an airline stewardess. She's known to be around club hopping all around the city. You need to go and find, uh, you know, like the places that she she frequents and ask around to see if you guys can find Wolfgard there or if anyone has seen him there. So, of course, like this whole montage scene of, of, of Billy D. Williams and Stallone going from bar to bar, asking people, holding a picture of the girl, seeing if they've seen her there. And they're get, they're continuously getting shot down. Until they get to one club and a guy says, yeah, she does come here. And he asks him if he's seen him with a guy there. And he says, yeah. And then he has the bouncer guy show them around the club. Um, and this is the interesting moment in the scene that kind of leads to, like, again, my favorite moment in the movie. But Sylvester Stallone has this hand-drawn sketch, which is like a sketch of what they think Wolfgar looks like now. And he's holding it and he's looking for men and he's passing men. Um, and some of them kind of look like Wolfgar, but he determines that they're not. And then he sees him dancing with a woman. He sees Rookerhauer and his eyes lock on him. And at this point, Billy D. Williams is thinking like, this is, you know, a bust. We, we're not going to find anybody here. And he's like, you ready to go? And he's like, no, 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 no. Look, look over there. He's like, look at this guy. And he's like, yo, and they lock eyes. Uh, I'm like, well, he doesn't lock eyes. Billy D. Williams looks at him. And then, you know, he can, and he asks the Silva, you think that's him? And he's like, I got a feeling. And he's like, all right, let's go check him out. So they walk up closer to get a closer look at, at, at Wolfgar, right? And as he's dancing, this, this great moment happens where he's dancing with this woman and he looks over and there's Sylvester Stallone, like several feet away, just staring at him. And he looks back at the woman and it's getting awkward and he's just staring and he's just staring. They're making eye contact and they're just staring. And it's great. It's just a great scene that plays off of, their faces, right? And then um, as the man turns to, Wolfgar turns to walk away with the woman, that's when Stallone just says, Wolfgar! And then at this point, Wolfgar pulls a gun out and spins around to shoot them, but, you know, De Silva and Fox are on point, and they, they immediately evade, move out the way, and he ends up shooting some random person in the back, and then, of course, everyone screams in the club, and he takes off, and then the chase ensues where, of course, the Silva and Fox r r pull guns and run after him, chase him outside the club. And there's this great scene of him them running through the city, and they actually run through this uh, very dope-ass construction site uh, that's like it starts above ground and goes down into, like, the tunnels where, like, into the subways. And there's, like, fucking all kinds of, like, sparks flying. You know, again, like, real gritty shit, right? So just a great scene. And they're ch chasing... He's being chased, I should say. He's being chased, Wolfgar is, by De Silva and Fox all along through the subway. He gets up to where the people are, and he, he grabs a woman and holds her with a knife and puts the knife to her throat and holds her hostage, and then he gets he hops on the subway train, and then, of course, the subway pulls off, but De Silva and Fox hop on the back, and then they break the window and go get onto the train and then they're running through the train cars to catch him who he's ran down to the other end of the train car. It's a great, like it's a great chase sequence. Right. 
And ultimately, the train stops. He runs out. The Silver and Fox split to catch him as he's running up to get out of the subway. Um, and, of course, I think Fox encounters him first, and he slashes Fox with a knife across the face. And that's when the Silver runs up, and instead of p- continuing to chase Wolfgar, who's running away, he has to come to his partner to check on him and make sure he's okay. And he's, like, holding him, right? He's holding him and holding his face because, uh, you know, his face is bloody. He cut him on the jawline, too, but he's screaming. And it's my favorite moment where he's fucking screaming um, at Wolfgar, like, you're fucking dead. You're fucking dead. It's it's just it's just a great moment, like, where he's just screaming out loud to, to Wolfgar. You're fucking dead. I kill that motherfucker. You're fucking dead. You're fucking dead. You motherfucker. You're fucking dead, you motherfucker. You're fucking dead. Uh, and another part that I didn't mention is before they get before Wolfgar gets on the, the train with the woman when he's holding a knife to her, there's a little standoff where they're holding guns on him, right? And Fox is telling De Silva to take the shot. He's like, take the shot. But De Silva won't take the shot. And ultimately, I think De Silva made the right decision. Like, why risk it? Why, why take the shot when he could potentially hit not only this woman, but some other people that are around? He doesn't take the shot. But when... Um, when De Silva sees Fox again at the hospital after he's, you know, he's recovering in bed and he's patched up, he tells him you should have took the shot, which is kind of fucked up. And you could tell like in this moment that De Silva's like really fucked up that his partner, he's hurt by the fact that his partner said this to him. Yeah, and that's the best part of the movie. <laughs> um, and then it gets to this moment where um, this crazy nonsensical scene where the meeting is going down at the fucking, I guess, was this at the, it might have been at the World Trade Center? I'm not sure. Um, but there's the, the UN meeting thing is going down and they have the task force there. They all have walkie talkies and um, they're just sort of like on the lookout, right? And at the, ta- this is when Orchard, um, I think you think you think uh, De Silva and Orchard have kind of like warmed up to each other, and I think De Silva even says, "Yo, after this is over, do you want to like go get go get some food or some some something to eat or some Chinese or some shit?" And Orchard's like, "Yeah, it's like a, some, supposed to be some sort of like heart to heart moment." So immediately you know that something bad's gonna happen. And Orchard's going up the escalator, and as he's going up the escalator, he sees the woman Shaka again. If that's not her name, I'm sorry, but I'm not looking it up because, you know, I want to get to do this movie and talk about. Uh, Nighthawks, the album. <laughs> um, so as he's coming up the escalator, he sees her. They make eye talk, eye contact. You know, he has, he says his last words. And I think it's something to the effect of like, oh shit, or shocking or something. I don't know. I forget what he says, but she shoots him. Boom. This, I mean, the Silva runs up. Everyone runs up. They see him. He's dead. Literally, she's shot in the head. Um, this was sort of, Wolfgar sending a message, whatever, because this whole entire plan is there is a, uh, the Roosevelt, like, what is it? The, the tram, the, the one that like, it's like takes you over the bridge, like via the, the, like the, uh, like, again, it's more like, I think it's called a tram. If I, if it's not called a tram, I apologize, but 
it's through the air on a cable, you know, on a cable car that, that takes people through the air across, right? Um, well, apparently that some diplomats are in there and Wolfgar and, and, and Shaka uh, take this over. Like they pull Uzis and they take, they, they make them stop in midair and they take everyone hostage. And, and then they, he starts to make his demands, right? Um, and one of the first things that happens is uh, Joe Spinell calls De Silva and Fox to come down that Wolfgar has taken hostages um, he's in, he's down on the, on the Roosevelt ferry tram, whatever. Um, and of course, De Silva gets in a helicopter and goes up and immediately when Wolfgar sees De Silva, he takes the French diplomat's wife, shoots her, then throws her body out of, out of the tram and it, she falls into the water. And he's like basically telling them like, I told you no cops and I saw him. So this was, you know, this was your warning. Now, there's also a baby on the tram, um, and he says that he wants the baby to be taken off. And he says that he wants the world to know that, like, he's not a monster. You know, he's doing what he's doing is just for a reason. Also, you have to think he's trying to get back into the good graces of Mercer, who, remember, Mercer was pissed that he blew up the department store and several children were killed. So I think this is also an attempt for him to get back in the good graces of the fold of the terrorist organization that he wants to be part of again. Because he's kind of like a freelance terrorist, right? It's, again, it doesn't really make that much coherent, logical sense. But, you know, it's the 80s. It's America. We have weird views of foreign policy and the reasons for people doing things, specifically when it comes to terrorism, right? <laughs> but this is not that podcast. Um, so, yeah. So he wants De Silva to specifically come up and get the baby. So he lowers this. There's a rope inside. Uh, like a rope and pulley system inside the tram, which drops down from this compartment in the bottom that opens up. De Silva goes up, even though Fox is like, he shouldn't go up, he'll kill him. But, you know, Spin Joe Spinell's like, I don't give a fuck. Like, send De Silva up, because <laughs> he's a great lieutenant. So De Silva goes up, and he first, this is his first real kind of like close-up, face-to-face encounter um, with with uh, Wolfgar. And it's a, it's a pretty cool moment. He gives him the baby. Then he also tells them, he makes him tell the people that, like, the cops are cowards, which, again, shout out ACAB all day. <laughs> and he says that, like, uh, I have the make him, and also say the world is that I put, I bring the world to its knees, which, again, De Silva humors him, says it. Then he lowers him down with the baby, and he, he, he asks him before he does, why don't you kill me? He said, your time will come. And then he requests, like, they bring a bus, um, and, like, they need to free some political prisoners or whatever. But they do bring the bus. He requests that De Silva drives the bus. And, of course, this happens. Um, it's later at night by the time they get the bus because he says they need to do it by 10 p.m. The bus pulls up. De Silva waits. They get out of the – they lower the tram car. They get out. He has this, the, the hostages surrounding him and Shaka so that, like, you know, any kind of outside – you know, sniper shots, they will be like shielded uh, as they get into the bus. But Fox, he's waiting with a sniper rifle and he actually, uh, there's a moment after they hit, they approach the bus. I think Wolfgar comes up to De Silva, pats him down, finds nothing, you know, and, and, and basically says, you know, like your time's going to come, buddy. And at that moment, De Silva has a, he's brought it with him a recorder. For, and we don't know why, but he hits the recorder. It's on, it's on his shoulder, and he hits it, and it plays a recording of Orchard talking about Shaka, and I believe it's from the meetings, the the the, the task force meetings, right? 
and it says that she's just a rich girl who kills for kicks. And this sort of gets a reaction out of her, and she moves. And when she does, it puts her in the sights of Fox's gun, and he shoots her in the head. And at this point, you know, Wolfgar, and everyone scatters. Wolfgar jumps on the bus and drives the bus off a fucking bridge um, and crashes into the water. De Silva runs up waiting for to see if, 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 if Wolfgar will come out of the water, which he never does. And then, of course, Fox comes up asking him if he's okay. And he's like, all right, I'm fine, but, like, where is he at? And then um, this is where it comes into, like, all of the training, like, learning how to think. Like, well, this is what Orchard was trying to get across to De Silva is you need to learn how to think like Wolfgar in order to catch him. And he remembers he has all this information about the Silva, because that's one of the things that Orchard said is like, once he knows who you are, he's going to find out everything. And in fact, there is a moment that I didn't talk about where he has Shaka bring a bunch of information she can find about Orchard and the men that's working for him and the UN guys and everybody before he pulls off this goofy, you know, terrorist plot that he does. So immediately he, he's like, oh shit, I know where he's going to go. So he calls his ex-wife. And he's, the phone is ringing over and over and over again. Um, they're back at this store, too, which I forgot to mention. Um, after he kills this woman, uh, Wolfgar goes to this corner store operated by this foreign man of some descent. I can't quite place where he's from. Um, but apparently he he's part of the movement or sympathetic to the movement because when he mentions Wolfgar, he lets him in. And I think he like lets him stay in his basement. And that's where Shaka actually meets him. Um, so the police are back at that place. They're going through, they're arresting this guy. They're going through any materials they found in the basement that may have belonged to Wolfgar. And uh, at this moment, um, that's when, that's when De Silva realizes what Wolfgar's plan is going to be. So he calls his ex-wife, boom. And immediately she's not answering and it cuts to outside her house. We see his ex-wife getting off of work, whatever. She has a nice coat on. She walks up into her house, unlocks the door and comes in. And then across the street, there's Wolfgar. And he looks around to make sure the coast is clear. And he walks up to the door. He sees that it's locked, but he's looking through the window. He can see her in the kitchen in a robe. And then, like, he he opens the door, but there's the chain lock on. And we watch him sort of subtly pretty much break the chain lock off the door, you know, making as little noise as possible. It's a fairly impressive uh, little maneuver he does. And he gets inside. He closes the door. And he pulls his knife. And he's, like, slowly approaching the kitchen you know, to kill De Silva's wife. And of course, at this point, I knew what was going to happen. Um, and I think any savvy modern audience uh, is going to know what's happening, which is it's a callback to the very beginning of the movie. The movie ends the way it begins. And as you get closer and closer to the woman, you realize this is not going to be, this is going to be Sylvester Stallone, right? This is going to be him again, dressing in drag, um, posing as his ex-wife. And once Wolfgar gets within striking distance, Sylvester Sloan turns around, boom, it's him. Surprise, motherfucker. He shoots him. He doesn't shoot to kill. He shoots to, to wound. Um, and Wolfgar runs away, shot, and he shoots him again. He shoots him multiple times until Wolfgar finally dies. And then he comes outside and sits on the stoop. And that is the end of the fucking movie. <laughs> Please flip the cassette over to side B to continue the adventure. <laughs> Welcome to side B. The focus of this side is Nighthawks, the collaboration album by Cage and Camus Teo. Now, the album opens with a familiar intro, 
Um, it's the intro that you heard on the intro to this episode uh, with a little spin put on it. Uh, and it goes a little like this. Amir Reinhardt, sometimes called Wolfgang. Born Frankfurt, Germany, 1946. Educated Paris and Patrice Lumumba University, Moscow. Currently self-employed. Occupation, international terrorist. Dick de born and raised in New York City. 52 registered kids. Occupation, As you can notice, Nighthawks is directly referenced and incorporated at the very start of the Nighthawks project. Um, now, following this intro, um, it starts with a track called NRA, and immediately um, it's clear that Cage and Camus' version of De Silva and Fox are vastly different kind of cops than the ones that Sylvester Stallone and Billy D. Williams play in the Nighthawks film. Sunny day, fuck a money day, this is murder. Oh, you fucks wanna play with my money, let's hit your bird up first. Burst Kenny for Roma with Denny. Shot Tommy in the back while he was boning Jenny. Had to kill his bitch cause she liked to run her mouth. And I ain't got time to shoot off her arms and cut her tongue out. With Timmy flexing at his chest, legs, and hips up. Felt bad to kill him, just some kid mixed up. Nah, I seen him in the hospital getting his belly stitched up. So I finished the job, put six through his bitch cut. When I ID's proper, I slip out like doctors. Jump in the service elevator, switching the coppers. Cause it's a thug thing. Your niggas wanna cut cane at the DA's office. Hookers wanna hug brains. And if you wanna step at your turn, your chest to get burned. I serve and protect with mine, and you set it get turned. As you can see, the Silva and Fox are crooked cops in the Nighthawks album. They're like two bad lieutenants together as partners. I mean, that just sounds amazing. In fact, that should probably have been the movie. Two crooked, slimeball-ass cops in NYC in the 80s doing fucked up shit. And then they encounter some insane terrorist. And it becomes a situation where it's like, okay, who's the lesser of two evils? Or who's the evil or more evil of two evils. That's a film that I'd be interested in watching. And I think that Cage and Camus realized that upon watching this movie. I mean, I feel like this album is like, hey, this movie has some cool moments, but like, what if it was just like really more fucked up and really more violent and really more fucking gritty? I know I was using gritty to describe the film initially, but the album is far grittier. It's, it's just... It's gritty like a squirrel shit after eating just a bunch of nuts. Okay, yeah, I, I went too far with my, my, my description there, so uh, my apologies. But this album, I mean, it really hammers down on like the dirty cop angle, uh, which the song NRA doubles down with the chorus. We stop guns. We block and let them know we got guns. We gotta keep selling. We keeping the streets yelling. 
let them know This block's done Throw up your hands, fella, know you gon' keep yelling 44 mag and stock, it'll blow you to Yeah NRA is an anthem about police corruption. It is the police corruption anthem. <laughs> now, the album maintains this kind of consistent theme of corruption. This sort of album plays like a document of the exploits of the dirty version of De Silva and Fox. Now, I'll go ahead and read out the, the the titles to each of the 13 tracks now we've already heard the intro which is called the briefing and then i just played you some of nra which is the second song the third song is the trailer which at the start of this episode you've heard a piece of which plays like a movie trailer for the movie that exists within the album which is the sort of dirty cop version of nighthawks where cage is speaking in his movie trailer guy voice, talking about the exploits of the dirty versions of De Silva and Fox, as uh, I think Tame One and Cage himself and Camus all rap about various sort of dirty cop exploits. Um, then there's Cop Hell, again, another great title. Um, and then there's Keep the City Up, Car Chase, NYPD Skit, which leads into Count Cracula, um, great title again. Um, Nighthawks, self-titled record. <laughs> Let Him Go, Matt, a skit. PC, which stands for Police Crime. Bomb Beach, and then finally Street Polly. Now, I'll go through a little bit of each track and talk a little bit about how each one sort of relates to the overall you know, theme and piece, but I think it's pretty straightforward. Um, this is just a brilliant piece of work. Like, I feel like more artists could take a note or two from a project like this. I mean, we see these kinds of projects in different mediums, you know. We've, we've seen music, uh, you know, uh, inspire movies as well. And we've also seen books inspire movies and movies inspire books and books inspire music it's it's all circular right it's it's just it's it's beautiful it's art <laughs> um but yeah the initial sort of nra track which is the anthem to police corruption which i probably should play at like a uh, police union events uh, <laughs> uh is followed by the trailer now, I gave you guys a brief sort of preview of the trailer at the very top of this episode before it began, uh, but we can talk a little bit more about why this concept is so cool, because I haven't really seen this concept um, executed the way um, that Cage and Camus executed, and they bring on uh, Tame One, also Rest in Peace, which makes the song even more bittersweet to listen to now in a 2023 context, because both Camus Teo and Tame One have both passed away um, far too early, far too early. But before I go down that road, I do want to mention something that I haven't really brought up this entire episode, and that is Camus' production. Uh, Camus Teo was a multi-talented artist. Um, not only was he a rapper, but he was also a producer. 
In fact, he produced a significant amount of this album, of this Nighthawks project. And I really feel like uh, that can't be, you know, said enough um, in talking about Nighthawks and in talking about uh, Camus as an artist. Um, he was a multi-talented artist. He did a lot of things. He wasn't just, oh, the rapper guy, you know. Um, all of the people who knew him, um, both friends and fellow sort of artists, be it MCs and producers, all have similar things to say about him when it comes to his versatility, uh, you know, musically, but also just in art and creativity in general. Um, so yeah, I definitely wanted to, to, to highlight that and not leave that out uh, of the discussion when talking about this project and about him in, in general. Um, I would also like to say too, that it's very interesting that uh, this album is uh, laden with references to post 9-11 New York City uh, and sort of the war on terror uh, because, I mean, it was made in the early 2000s. It was only a few years removed from September 11th, right? Um, and obviously, Nighthawks, the film, was made in 1981. And it dealt with terrorists, a terrorist in New York City uh, doing terrorist acts. Uh, but given that this is an album about two New York City cops fighting uh, a terrorist but set in a post-2001, post-9-11 era. It's very cool to see how Cage and Camus weave that into the project, both thematically and through their lyrics. Um, we spoke a little bit about, or I spoke a little bit about, not we. <laughs> I spoke a little bit about uh, NRA, um, and now we're going to talk about the trailer track number three, the trailer record. Um, now, the thing about it is, again, we all are familiar with the movie trailer guy voice, right? Um, and it's so meta. That's another aspect to this song that I, that I appreciated. It's, it's meta-ness, right? Where it's referencing the movie, but it's also referencing itself, you know, as being sort of a parody or a sort of remix version of Nighthawks into this sort of quasi-conceptual rap album um, and sort of the way that they forego a hook. And instead of it being a hook, it's just Cage doing the movie trailer guy voice in between them spitting verses. The Washington Post says Nighthawks is a bad cop thrill ride for the entire family. Entertainment Weekly states a flat-out masterpiece. Smith & Wesson say they their guns back. The Daily News warns Steven Seagal, watch out, Nighthawks will whoop that ass. It's like I hate drug dealers, but I love to chase drugs. Police boots out, spews how you taste It's a simple concept, uh, but sometimes the most simple concepts are the best concepts. There's not much else to say about the trailer other than, you know, it is what it advertises itself to be, um, and it's a fairly entertaining and creative track. And then that's followed up by 
Cop Hell, which is produced by Mighty Mai. Um, again, Mighty Mai is the founder and owner of Eastern Conference Records and the producer slash DJ of the two-man duo, The High and Mighty. Um, and Cop Hell has a very infectious kind of, I don't even, I don't even know if you want to call it a hook, but it's basically just Cage saying Cop Hell uh, repeatedly through the track. A nice subtle touch to that track is the way Crooked is inserted into the chanting of Cop Hell, kind of like someone playing a game of Double Dutch, where as it repeatedly says Cop Hell, you just hear Crooked, um, and it's very dope. It's definitely a track that I feel like is one of kind of my faves on the album. Um, not upon first listen, but upon repeat listens, it has definitely grown on me um, in terms of being one of the tracks that I really like to listen to um, repeatedly. But okay, I know I said that this album was 13 tracks long, and that's true if you look for this album on streaming platforms, but it's not true. It's actually 14 tracks long, um, and I didn't even mention this track, but if you look for this album on YouTube, you will see there is an extra track, and the track is only, uh, I believe, what, let me double check here, 40 seconds long, because it's a skit, and that skit is called Strip Search, and it sounds exactly like what you think it is. I mean, obviously, uh, this is a moment where we see cops harassing uh, sex workers, which is another thing that uh, is uh, a recurring motif in this album. I mean, again, when I said that it's like two bad lieutenants uh, walking around in the movie Nighthawks, uh, that's exactly what it is, because this is exactly some shit that we would see Harvey Keitel do in Abel Ferreira's uh, Bad Lieutenant um, which definitely MAS material. Um, and yes, are these cops pieces of shit? Yes. Do they, are they misogynist? Are they corrupt? 
Are they uh, oppressors? Yes, all of the above. And uh, that's the point, um, which is another reason why I appreciate Nighthawks, because um, far too often do we get narratives where police are these like heroic figures. And in reality, most people do not view them that way. Most people have a, uh, at best, a suspicious relationship with the police, in my experience. Um, and those who do not, that's usually a telltale sign of their status and class um, and upbringing uh, when they have a very comfortable sort of relationship when it comes to the police. Um, but yeah, that track, for whatever reason, maybe it's a sample clearance reason. I'm not quite certain. I'm not quite sure. You won't find it if you listen to this album on Spotify. I didn't check Apple Music, but it's definitely not there. Um, and I definitely forgot to included uh, at the top when I was talking about the album being 13 tracks long. It is, in fact, 14 tracks. I mean, if you took out the skits, which it is a skit, if you took out the skits, then the album would be, what, 12? No, 11 tracks, because I believe it opens with the skit. It has a skit uh, the in, over the phone um, before the Count, Tracula, uh, the Count Cracula song, which we'll talk about. Um, when we get there, um, and then they have this skit. So yeah, I mean, minus three tracks, roughly 11 songs. I'm not good at math. You'll probably look at the album uh, track list and be like, you're wrong. And you guess I could look at it right now in front of me, uh, which I will. Let's do it. Why not? You know, I got to get better about like using my resources while I do these podcasts. Okay, so yes, the briefing, which is an intro that definitely counts as a skit. Then the NYPD skit. Then, uh... The, the strip search skit. Yeah. So uh, Let Him Go Matt is a skit as well. So that's four. So it'd be 10 tracks, four skits. Yeah. Glad we cleared that up. <laughs> so yeah, uh, after the strip search uh, skit, that's when we get to the song Keep the City Up. Now, Keep the City Up, I believe, is co-produced by... Uh, Kamu Teo and DJ Mighty Mai together. Now, Keep the City Up, there's a reason that this song is preceded by the strip search skit because the song is pretty much uh, about how Cage and Kamu are abusing their police power to sort of exploit sex workers, you know, um, give them to give them sex, sexual favors uh, in exchange for them not arresting them or whatever. Again, bad lieutenant shit. Shit that actually happens. You know, police get busted doing this all the time. But yeah, it pretty much opens with Cage kind of harassing a sex worker and pretty much leveraging his power as a cop to get, you know, sex. It's dark shit. This is dark material. Massage parlor hoes don't ask to get ransacked They ask for signatures and where they should put their hands at Yeah, that feels nice, baby, give it a better squeeze Wait till she clean up, go in the locker, pull out the Beretta The brains was nice, I ain't precise And I pulled the necklace out that would change her life We both know what you're doing is against the law So put your panties back on and fix your bra When I pick you up tomorrow, there'll be no resistance Cause I got a lot of clients and they need assistance Hold up, hoes, yo, you ready to go? 
to the courthouse. Now I get you ready to blow. And if you don't give up on draws, I'm breaking you slow. And I start by breaking some laws, start breaking your jaw. As you hear, they're painting a very different picture here than the Nighthawks movie. So yeah, I will say this. This song has a very catchy hook. The hook is infectious. Let's go stick a willy up, pick his jewelry up. Nah, let's go pick a cherry up, wanted three pair em up. Let's just stick your titties up, hook a little giddy up. Look a little pretty, but you know I keep the city up. Pull a bag of Eddie up, no handy or any talk to you out the door. When the dough is in your panties, what? Haters, we already up. Nighthawk, steady cut, every pile of shit trying to stick his nine million. Yeah. <laughs> yes, as you can see, once again, um, if you're this far into the episode and if you're this many tracks in, I'm going to go ahead and say it's safe to assume you're on board. <laughs> so following Keep the City Up, we have the track Car Chase, which is about a car chase uh, featuring Metro. And for, for the young heads listening, uh, this isn't Metro as in Metro booming. This is Metro as in an underground rapper named Metro who hops on this track uh, produced by Camus. Um, it's a very funky kind of, uh, I want to say, guitar riff sample flip. Um, it's an enjoyable listen because, again, it's like you're just listening to sort of how uh, Cage and Camus' version of De Silva and Fox are just like cops who just fuck the city up. Like it's ironic, you know, that the track before this is called Keep the City Up because these cops clearly fuck the city up. And it's no exception in this car chase where they're chasing after this uh, criminal, one will assume. I mean, honestly, the cops are criminals in this world too. So it's two criminals chasing each other, right? Or one criminal chasing another, should I say. Um, and it's a pretty, uh, well, I'll let you guys listen for yourselves. Got the wheel, man. Look who's in the driver's seat. Homeboy, it's a car chasing blast by here. Is that him? Has to be. Yo, who these crazy cops after me? Left hand on the wheel while I'm aiming sideways. Push the pistol to the limit every Friday. Push the pedal to the limit every highway. Push this little crime pan to put a kid in line day. With the sign say doing plus 30. Schoolie. Be on the CD Fox pass. This is a thugged out brain doing thugged out things. A six shooter from the window with a snubbed out aim. Whoa. I know we up in the chase, but look at those sluts. You keep your eyes on the road, I hit on the drum. As I listen to this album, I just keep thinking about how they did this in three days. Like from the genesis of this project to the completion of this project, it all came together in three days. And this is something that I like to discuss a lot when it comes to creating things. Um, is like how a lot of times in art, there'll be certain projects that you sort of have to build brick by brick. And then there are those things that you create that just come out almost fully formed and in a burst, right? And those things tend to be the ones that are the most special, you know? Um, at least in my experience, they are the most special. Um, and as you can see, like, this is just a vivid sort of world that they've created. Uh, just using the springboard of a kind of okay, passable, kind of dumb, violent cop movie from the 80s that inspired this whole other thing. Um, 
yeah, it's just, you know, obviously I love it. I'm doing an episode on it. Um, but yeah, and then after this sort of thrill ride, quite literally, um, ends, it's followed by another skit. And since the skits are so short, I'll play them all in full. So this skit is actually called NYPD. It's a skit that transitions into the song after, which, in my opinion, is the most creative song on the whole project. But this skit, it's about a pimp calling the police. Uh, and you can hear as he's on the phone trying to get in contact with Detective Silva, he's like yelling at his his prostitutes in the background um, and random people in the background as he's on the phone trying to get in touch with Silva because he wants to call Silva to snitch on a vampire crack dealer who's like moving in on his territory or more specifically territory that De Silva and Fox let him have. Um, you get that sense from this skit and that, you know, De Silva and Fox's hands are in everything, right? They're dirty cops. Uh, and this pimp is calling De Silva to tell him about this, again, this vampire crack dealer who's been sucking the blood of his whores. You know what? I'm not even going to talk about it. I'm just going to play it. It's only about a minute and 45 seconds long. New York Police Department. Yeah, can I speak to Silver, please? Who, please? Detectives unit. Yeah, can I have the silver, please? Hold. Hey, motherfucker. Uh-uh, nigga. No, no, no. Don't come around here again, you motherfucker. I know you. Shit. Hey, bitch. Listen, tell I don't give a fuck if that is your brother's friend, man. Hold is $50 on my corner. Shit. You think this is safe to win game? It's a pin game, bitch. The silver, leave it. want to move drugs and suck blood then cause trouble that is the opening line wrapped by Camus on the song Count Cracula as I've already said this is my favorite song on Nighthawks because it's just a very creative concept like so far we've been listening to Cajun Camus rap about being dirty cops. And it's been sort of within the realm of reality. 
I mean, at least the reality that they created inside this album. But this takes it to a different place where they're trading bars, um, vampire related bars throughout the song um, with another rapper named Space. And Space is rapping from the viewpoint of the vampire who the cops are at war with. It's a literal, a literal war in the streets for turf between De Silva, Fox, and this Count Cracula vampire. Like they ain't gonna take you out You like my bands, of course I locked you Showing those for rocks, you with a swat is you blocked to After the smoke clears and blood, sweat and tears I feed off fears and walk around with tunnel vision Mr. Brown invading your town where you can sleep And I'll be pushing the hearse with reverses at you laughing Play the reverse cursing Wearing badges, you want girls, freedom and grass. You see the doctor, blocks I got it locked. The nocturnal is mobster, space dementia. Scream if you're a sinner. Fuck the vamps, we dry out like coke plants. Castlevania shutdown, got no chance. Snipers on the roof, come and fly with me. And fall to the concrete for trying to die with me. Look, don't fight the sun, you'll lose to the gun, you. Can't go home, we blew up where you're from, dude. Not return or you'll go like your whore. I hope you pigs know this shit means war. I'm not going to dwell on it too much, but it's a good song. The beat is appropriate. The beat sounds like some shit you would hear uh, in Transylvania. It's a great track, and it segues to the next track, which is called Nighthawks, which samples uh, a familiar moment in the movie because I've already used it on side A of this episode, which is when De Silva is screaming at Wolfgar holding Fox in the subway. funky it's a funky ass beat and just very i don't know um 
just it just gives me a warm feeling inside listening to that song, listening to them rap about, you know, doing all sorts of illicit illegal activities with a badge. Um, it's it's definitely uh, pure uncut degenerate music, which is what the next song, Police Crime, is a celebration of. Okay, you can argue that the whole album is a celebration of it, but uh, Police Crime is definitely exactly the song that you think it is. Um, Cage and Camus rap about, you know, robbing drug dealers, um, getting blown in the back of cop cars, uh, fucking looters' wives. Yeah, that type of shit. It's great. Listen. Kick the door, dealers hit the floor. Grab the coke and the cash, fuck the weed and the whores. Driller four, so left, I'm in the right mind. You want PC, that means polite crime. It's a drug bust, hold up, y'all, read them his rights. Then stash dope, then grab dope, beat them with pipes. Then grab holes and mash out, feed her with white. Then laugh when we turn and report, see when we lies. I got two Berettas and a 12 pump. So if you got starving pits, I'm coming to help them. You take that coke and the cash under the carpet and leave a dead federal witness in the apartment. If it seems like I'm speeding through this album at this point, it's because I am. I promised myself that I would try to keep this episode under two hours, which is kind of funny given that it's a podcast with no guest, but I can talk. And I think I'm making good time. And also, I really do want people to listen. Just like I want people to watch the movies they talk about. I want people to listen to stuff. If I decide to talk about an album, I would like them to get the full experience themselves. Uh, so yeah, moving right along. Police Crime is followed by a song called Bomb Beach, which is essentially a smut peddler's record. Uh, for those who don't know, smut peddlers was a group that consisted of the High and Mighty in Cage together in one group. Now, Bomb Beach is pretty much Mr. Eon jumping on a song with Cage and rapping from the perspective of a dirty cop himself, much like Cage and Camus have been doing the whole project. Uh, but I do think that Camus is the one who produced this, and it's a very funky, noticeable sample that he flips. So it's not really a Smut Peddler song, since, I guess, DJ Mighty Mai didn't produce it. I'm pretty sure Camus produced it. But it is uh, Mr. Eon in Cage going back and forth. Again, rapping about being corrupt police. We cops with clocks and we own the concrete. Jungle put bundles through your blocks so palm me. You better get your click and your clip and we calm streets. On the west side highway bucking welcome to Bomb the right Alonzo, Eldorado and the condo Product of the 80s, I'm this little Nicky Scarfo The God knows, it's an ortho When I lay down the law Uniform the pharmacies, I aim and draw No coffee, I'm all fiend I'm seen in Walgreens Badge out, snatching up the oxycodone Frank Rizzo ain't got nothing on me Cause it's a thin blue line that I work every time Not in a hurry, be worried Grand jury can't hurt me that little lady in the back, that's my old dog, Curdy. Man up, honky. Yeah, we smoke on the job. The Las Vega blueberry with this coke on the top. A J and J, no problem. Never heard any words. I'm up in the luxury box puffing with Mike Bloomberg. 
him a win a lot and his wife's inside. His chief dick Starbuck cold lost his mind. You get the sense of what this song is. It's pretty clear. <laughs> and now um, I'm getting to the last skit. And this skit on this album is yet again a sample from the movie. It's from the scene where De Silva and Fox bust in on a drug operation and Fox gets really upset at the leader of this drug crew who's calling him a pig and saying he already paid the cops off and Fox shoves a shotgun in his face. Yes, let him go, Matt. Now we come to the final song. The final song in this 14-track project. I know I said 13 at the beginning, but we've already went over and corrected that error. And I'm sure that there were some inaccuracies in other parts of this episode. But, you know, this podcast, it's kind of built in that there's going to be flaws, right? There's going to be things that are not quite a hundred percent. I don't want this thing to be too pristine. This isn't an NPR type of show. No, this is MAS. I record this sometimes in my garage. So this is a lot more punk than your typical kind of podcast. At least I like to tell myself that. But anyway, we've come to the last song. This song is called Street Polly. And I know that before I said that Count Cracula is my favorite song on this project, but I changed my mind. I think Street Polly is my favorite song. At least it is right now as I record this. Now I know that typically... When I end a podcast, I always say that I don't know how to end podcasts, which I don't. But I happen to know how to end this podcast. I'm going to play you the final song in full and end on some high energy. And I'll be back with a new episode next week, as usual. Peace. The 
silver. Get your wife drunk and make a beat your children. How could y'all ever be silver? Black Tech 9, fuck next time I shoot now. Bullets pooped out if you live. Cops in the coop now. Fuck chasing Afghani, Irani, Iraqis. When I got all this pataki cake to back me. With no needles, put the smack down, clap in the heat. Fuck them Cali quakes, I put the crack in the street. It's like cops on a rampage, watch out for loose cannons. Muscle with a badge, cop version of Bruce Banner. Bulletproof vest, guns, clips to trip scanners. You all get stuck up, you fucked up. We use cameras. Protect the payroll so the business is right. Suitcases for the judge, giving you 30 to life. We stay tucked, stay up and stake outs, ready to ride. When young punks, you fucked up, you'll fuck up his life. Street politics to pave the way, save the day. The white in the house, paid to play. The rape today, the A to K. The way to spray, see this shit blow, it's maybe gay. Street politics to pave the way, save the day. The H and the guns play, the blades in bay. The haze in May, the A to K. The way to spray, you see this shit blow, it's maybe gay. Bad boys, what you gonna do? What you gonna sue? We get suspended with pay. All times protected witness, freedom with trades. All night heat seekers throw gauges, grenades. Drive-bys, you lose, news said it was gains. On a random drug bus. Cover-ups is where terrorists get their tummies plugged. Drug dealers use them sickles, leave them honeys cut. Get your cut up, cousin, and get them gats up. You look in the street, poly, then keep calmly. Cause you funny motherfuckers gonna die for my heat follies Two pounds of molly and the key to your shit Smoking like the holder man-made media hit From the cannon that fell from the heavens into my hand And told me to keep blasting till I'm the last standing Ask Brandon, the captain of my precinct Buried with no face just to spite how we think Street politics to pave the way, save the day The white in the house, paid to play The rage today, the A to K, the way to spray You see this shit blow, it's made yay to pave the way, save the day The H and the guns play, the blades at bay The haze in May, the A, the K The way to spray, you see this shit blow It's made it, yeah Away from walking the beat to talking with heat And keeping motherfuckers up until I force them to sleep Heat With so much dough in the U.S. My Glocks do duets Got you stuffing your bullet holes with sucrets New vests, new bands, detainment friends My game is ends Clap for your performance, I ain't say revenge I aimed at them, high in the seat Left them low on the side of the street Cold world, riding with heat Flat foot on the beat, no heat You need to shut up We slang handcuffs tight, leaving them wrists cut up Hoes, give me some cut up I need to relax Don't call it in, it's a come up We beat them for crack and it's easy as that, no taps and no bugs No warrant at the DA's office is no love Heaters will creep up, leaving them bodies to clean up Wet them with shotties and watch their bodies steam up Street politics to pave the way, save the day The white in the house, G-Dog Paid to play, the rage today, the A to K The way to spray, you see this shit blow, it's made again Street politics to pave the way, save the day The H and the guns play, the blades at bay The haze and May, the A to K, the way to spray you see this shit blow, it's made, yay.